later. So due to a technical glitch with the webinar on Monday, we are hosting our very own, we actually look like the Brady Bunch, we're hosting our very own uh, podcast on our Budget Choices 2024 launch. So hello to all of our listeners. And obviously you can get this as a video podcast on our website, socialjustice.ie as well. So um. We're going to kick off, I suppose, without any further ado, with our CEO, Sean Healy. And he is going to bring us through, I suppose, the context and the framing of Budget 24. So over to you, Sean. Thanks, Colette. There's a, there's a very complicated and uh, unusual context because on the one side, we have persistent inflation and uh, rising poverty. On the other side, we have a growing economy, full employment and large corporate tax revenue way in excess of anything we've had before. Uh, although that's a, on a based on, on a very narrow base of companies who are paying huge amounts of that tax. So I think what, like as we head into the budget, I think Social Justice Ireland is basically saying that the budget of 2024 should be guided by one core principle, that the measures adopted uh, prioritize the protection of the most vulnerable groups in Irish society. That's the most important thing. Um, and we certainly don't want any repetition of what happened in 2023, when government basically gave tax cuts, which were permanent to the better off, but gave a lot of one-off payments to poorer people. Uh, and those, pa the, the, those payments were temporary. So what they effectively did was widen the gap between um, uh, the widen the rich poor gap, uh, in fact, by 199 euro in the one budget, and uh, as well as that, uh, they didn't keep pace with inflation and the value, the real value of the welfare rates. So people were left behind. So the gap, not alone, it was the gap widening, but people uh, found themselves. Uh, with a, a welfare payment that was worth less in real terms and could buy less than it had the previous year. They were, in fact, worse off in 23 than they were in 20, or they had been in 22. So uh, there's no doubt but that some people in the society are doing very well, while others struggle from day to day to provide the essentials to live life with dignity. Ireland is the most expensive country in the European Union. Figures out a couple of weeks ago from Eurostat, the European um statistics uh, office there shows that Ireland is a 47, 48% high above the EU average in terms of exp the expense of living. And that's been rising steadily uh, since about 2015 or before, uh, but it's cons consistently rising. And now we're the most expensive country in the European Union. And in that most expensive country, we have a poverty rate over 13%, 671,000 people at risk of poverty, of whom 188,000 are children and 143,000 are uh, older people. And that older people number is rising dramatically. So we have a serious poverty problem, although it's not acknowledged a lot of the time. So we need to, to take serious action in that space. Um, we're basically arguing for 25 euro a week uh, for um uh, the minimum welfare rate, the core welfare rate, 
and we're also arguing for 50 euro a week for a child benefit increase but we'll come back to that when we talk about children um what else we basically arguing as well that with the huge amount of money we should basically split the budget in two and recognize that we have a lot of one-off payment one-off money windfall but what we should do is basically that one-off should only be spent on one-off uh, expenditure. So things like building houses or things that you don't have to do again the following year. It shouldn't go to pay increases or contributions to other to services that then have to be renewed again next year. We mightn't have that money next year. So the, the windfall tax basically should go on, um, on this uh, one-off expenditure. So what we're proposing in that context is to split the budget and look at it as two budgets side by side. Uh, the windfall um, amounts, all that to be dealt with separately and accounted for separately so that we can see what money we're, what we're doing with, the, with the, uh, the, the windfall money, if you like. But on the other side, the regular budget, and we should make sure that we're keeping that, if we can, uh, close to balance all the time. And the challenge there is that if we keep that, that if we do it in this two-part two, or two-sided way by splitting the budget, we have a clear picture uh, of how we're doing and whether or not we can actually, um, how would you put it, um, pay our way uh, subsequently if there's a crash or whatever. We'll be fully transparent, in other words, and we'll be able to not fool ourselves uh, that we're actually doing uh, great, well, uh, great, uh, doing very well when in fact we might be depending on windfall taxes that are not coming back. So uh, it, it, the fiscal stance that we're taking basically are to do those two things. We have um, a, a sort of, again, the uncertainty of the fiscal stance and the lot of geopolitical uncertainty with the Russia's invasion of, the, of Ukraine is continuing and so on. But we have on the other side... Um, large windfall corporation tax that I've been talking about. So basically the stance is um, that there should be this one core principle that the measures ad adopted prioritize the promotion of the most vulnerable groups in our society or the protection of the most vulnerable groups in our society. And on the other side then, uh, that we actually split the budget in two so that there's a clarity and uh, no, no uh, fooling ourselves like we've done before and then to suddenly woke, wake up some morning when there's a crash and we find we have uh, billions in, in the red. That should not happen as a result if we actually split the budget in two and, and, and uh, present it in that way, analyze it, then put it back together to summarize the final budget. So I think that's enough of an intro and a fiscal stance, Colette. So over back to you. Yeah. Um. I suppose that we were getting some questions around the time of the the conference or the, the webinar. So Shabail is stepping in as our audience today. Um, we'll do it slightly more interactively. So Shabail, would you like to ask Sean anything about what he's just said in relation to the context yeah. and the fiscal stance? I have a few questions for you, Sean. Um, the first one will be that there's always people who argue against expenditure for one reason or another. So in the context of the current persistent inflation, inflation, the argument that spending more, not least the large tax windfall that you spoke about, might exacerbate inflation. So, how would you respond to this concern? Well, there, there's a certain truth that uh, that people on one side want to spend all the money, and on the other side they want to spend no money. 
Now, when we look at Ireland today, we have serious uh, deficits in infrastructure. We have deficits in services. Like our infrastructure, um, that housing, public transport, and uh, broadband, all those things, are not anywhere close to where you would expect a European country with the level of income of Ireland to be. And as well as that, or we have a two-tier healthcare system and we have uh, a struggling education system that's bursting at the seams. And uh, no, no, uh, there's a lot of good things going on in all of that, but there's a huge deficits, if you like, that need to be addressed. So there's an argument certainly to be made that additional money can be spent. But the, there's a couple of things to be aware of. Uh, there's a lot of talk about 5% as a ceiling. But in actual fact, that 5% was created by government back in 2021. It simply said basically that they would uh, increase the budget by 3% plus inflation. Inflation at the time was 2%, 3 plus 2, that was 5%. There's absolutely no reason and no laws in economics or anything that says that they should maintain that when inflation goes up, doubles, trebles, quadruples. And I mean, the 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 two percent that it was at that time, and it's come back down. It's now forecast to be something like four point nine percent in twenty four. So if that's the case, um, you could say four point nine plus the three that they were going to four point nine percent is the inflation rate that just holds your own, and then three percent on top of that would be uh, three and four seven point nine percent. That's a different number completely, um, to 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 five percent. So I mean, I I could I could live with government going part of the way, at least in that direction. But there's one critical issue in the middle of it all, and that is how that money is actually spent. Because if the money that they spend, and it's a lot of money, if they spend it the way they did last year, it'll widen the poverty, the rich-poor gap, and it will leave poor people further behind. They'll be worse off than they were uh, this year, than they are this year. That's if government goes the way it went last year, which is basically to give a small social welfare increase and then just put a lot of one-off top-ups. But the problem with top-ups is when, you know, one-offs, you know, when they're gone, they're gone. And the contrast is very interesting because the government's talking about a billion plus euro in tax cuts. They're permanent, but they're for the better off in society. So interesting, an approach for the better off that says, we will give you permanent uh, money, additional money into your pocket because we reduce your taxation. For the poor, we'll give you a one-off payment, but it'll be gone in a few months' time. We might phase it, phase a few of them over a few months, but they're going to be gone eventually. And you know what? Once again, you're going to be poorer in in 24 than you were in 23, and you're already poorer in 23 than you were in 22 and 21. So what's going on here? You know. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think that's the critical issue. Uh, that government has to be forced to address. Brilliant. And then just one more question for you that came in uh, on Monday. Ireland has one of the highest debt per capita ratios in Europe. So shouldn't we be using the windfall to pay down the debt and prepare for a rainy day? Well, you could be preparing for a rainy day without paying down the debt. Um, the, the bottom line in it is, yes, Ireland does have a high debt GDP ratio. Well, sorry, it doesn't have a high debt GDP ratio. It has a very low debt GDP ratio, but the GDP number is mad. So like people, it's not accepted by anybody as being a legitimate picture of where we are. But so if you're looking at debt, we do have high debt. Uh, and some of the some of the of the windfall could be used to reduce the debt. 
but I'd be more interested in ideas about um, sort of a, a, a sovereign debt, debt um, a sovereign wealth fund, for example, that could be invested in major projects uh, or something that would uh, sort of be a, a an infrastructure fund for the long haul, that type of idea, so that when the windfall dies out, we'll still have money to build additional houses on top of, we'll say, what's already planned, because we're going to need a lot of social housing for a long time to come, certainly beyond the 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 sort of this this particular bubble of of uh, income that we're getting, uh, that windfalling income that we're getting from uh, the uh, taxation being paid by corporate the, the large corporates, but um, but I I think it's important to to not try to put the whole money over it, paying off for the debt. I don't think that's sensible. Um, I'd, I'd like to see it maybe even looked at. Is there something that to contribute towards the introduction of, or to put a fund into place that would help the with the introduction of a universal state pension, for example, that we've been advocating for a long time? I think we we have shown how that could be paid for without any windfall. But if the windfall is there, it means it costs less to put it into place. Maybe that's an issue that we could do something with. I'd like to see people benefit, and in particular. I don't want to see the money going basically to be paying off very rich people who are making very serious profits uh, from the money that they're making in the first place. So I, I, I think we should use the money that we have in a productive way, definitely, in a sensible way, fiscally responsible way, absolutely. But that doesn't that that does mean that we can tackle our housing with more money than we had before, and that we can tackle our energy and our uh, wind um, energy sourcing uh, more with more money than we had before, and a number of other kinds of critical initiatives could be taken that we're suggesting in our in this presentation. Great stuff. Um, thank you for that. And the the very interesting and exciting uh, area of taxation then falls to me. But I think it follows quite well from what you were saying, Sean, um, around that that need to keep the core budget separate from the windfall surpluses, because if if you do that, then you need to be able to account for where the money comes from to keep the show on the road. You need to able to be able to pay for the core budget. And that comes predominantly from taxation. So, you know, we've been saying it for a long time. The Commission on Taxation and Welfare said it last year. The European Commission are probably blue in the face saying it, um, calling on Ireland to broaden its tax base and increase the tax take to basically collect more than or collect more money I suppose from a, a, a wider variety of sources um, and we've been pretty bad at doing that we're very heavily reliant now on corporation tax on income tax and on VAT as our main sources of income and we do need to go beyond all of that um, now that's not to say that social justice Ireland are looking to increase income taxes we're not in fact we're we're looking to decrease um for for the vast majority we're looking to to increase the the tax credits the two main tax credits the PAYE PAYE and the personal tax credit by 5 euro a week which would give um all employees or certainly the vast majority of employees an additional 10 euro a week but a broader tax base could take the form of 
the introduction of a, a minimum effective rate of corporation tax starting at 6% with budget 2024 and then moving towards a, a 10% effective rate over time. And if we did that for budget 24, that would generate an additional 1 billion in revenue. Um, you mentioned, Sean, the, the standard rating of, of pension related tax reliefs and that the fact that we need a funding source for our proposal for a universal state social welfare pension, which will be a much fairer type of pension than we're seeing with auto enrollment. Um, the standard rating then would generate another 599 million in 2024. Standard rating, the discretionary non-pension related tax reliefs would generate another 152 million, increasing the capital taxes. So CGT, the capital gains tax and CAT, the capital acquisitions tax by two percentage points would generate an additional 176 million, increase the in-shop and online betting taxes to 3%, just 3%, uh, which would add an additional 50 million and reversing the VAT reduction for the hospitality sector because we have not seen that being passed to the consumer at all and returning it to 13.5% would generate an additional 375 million. So they would be kind of the, I suppose, the, the core asks. And then other taxation measures would include limiting the ability of individuals and corporations to carry their losses forward with a, a rolling limit of five years. That was something that was brought in after the, the 2008 crash. That really needs to be phased down. Um, and that would yield an additional 100 million in 2024. Reforming the R&D tax credit. And this is something that drives me personally insane um, because what it does is it allows some very, very profitable firms to reduce their tax liability to near or less than zero. So there are really profitable corporations who not alone don't pay any tax. They get given money because of the refundable uh, portion of the R&D tax credit. Um, while we don't do anything like that on the personal tax credit side. Um, but but doing that, you know, uh, reforming that would provide an additional 150 million to the exchequer for a full year. Um, abolishing the SARP, again, something that was brought in in response to the 2008 crash, that was the special assignee relief program to attract, I suppose, high earners into the country. Um, if you abolish that, because it's no longer needed, we are at full employment, um, it would generate 35 million next year, restoring the non-principal private residence charge and charging it at 500 uh, euro on second homes would generate an additional 106 million next year. A minor increase, as in you know, going from seven and a half percent to eight percent in the stamp duty on non-residential property would generate almost sixty million. Um, introducing the refundable tax credit, so that's that thing I was talking about. We talk about the R and D tax credit and how that is refundable, and yet we don't do it for very low earners, the the working poor. And um, if we were to do that, if we were to allow people who don't earn enough to use their full tax credit to get that unused portion back at the end of the year, um, it would only cost 140 million. Um, and then we, we also need to allocate uh, an additional 45 million to the revenue commissioners to, for tax compliance and enforcement. Um, 
And if I can move on, then I suppose to start looking at, well, where would we spend all of this additional money in our, our core budgets? Um, the first of our investment packages that we we talk about um, is on housing and, and homelessness. And we saw last week that the numbers accessing emergency homeless accommodation within the two weeks of the month in May uh, have broken another record. We're record breakers in homelessness. Um, and it now stands at 12,441 people. Um, there are 157,000 households in need of long-term social housing when you include, as the Taoiseach did, uh, households who are in receipt of HAP but staying in the private rented sector. While the government spends an additional, or sorry, a, a half a billion euro every year on the housing assistance payment alone. Um, in Budget 24, we're also calling on government to begin the process of doubling the social housing stock to 20% by 2030, um, which would start with an investment from the windfall surplus of 1.4 billion, in addition to what has been committed to under Housing for All. We would also call on government to abolish the supply side subsidies, such as the help to buy scheme, uh, which, according to our own analysis and analysis of the Parliamentary Budget Office, is increasing in cost. It's supporting increasingly expensive house purchases and it's being paid to people who don't need it. So, in, like, in fact, over a third of all recipients had a deposit of at least 20 percent of the asking price, if not more. And that scheme cost almost 200 million last year. If that were abolished, that could go a, a huge amount of the way to expanding the Housing First programme, which is currently only available to vulnerable adults, and expand it to families with children. So that is, you, you get your home and you get the wraparound supports. We've seen time and time again what is happening with children developmentally because of the fact that their families don't have cooking facilities. There was a really good report a couple of years ago from uh, Novas in Limerick where children had problems chewing because the muscles, they like they, they were getting delayed speech, they had problems chewing food because the muscles in their tongue and their jaw weren't being developed because they didn't have cooking facilities. So they were still, you know, pre-packed purees because that was the most nutritionally dense food their parents could provide to them when they had no of no cooking facilities for themselves. So we need to start addressing what's happening with children in um, homeless accommodation. We want to see a tax on empty homes and underdeveloped land, which would generate 100 million in Budget 24 and an investment of that money in ensuring that existing communities that have a large proportion of social housing have sufficient amenities and supports, because that would not only support those communities, but it may also remove that so-called barrier to building additional homes in areas that without that support just can't cope with additional populations. And to avoid homelessness, we're seeking the introduction of an equity scheme for borrowers in long term mortgage arrears of 10 years plus, um, which would alleviate the, the very constant pressure that those families face while making mortgage payments more affordable. And we're proposing a pilot in 2024 that would cost 100 million. And then finally, on, on the housing side, um, we want to see an increase in private rent inspections to ensure that properties in the private rented sector are actually fit for purpose, let alone fit for purpose for, for social welfare tenants. Um, and I'm sure, Shabelle, you have questions for me on that, but I'm going to move slightly on to the work side before moving on to the very lovely Suzanne um, to talk about the welfare. We want to support the more than 133,500 people who have, have employment 
but who are still living on incomes that are below the poverty line. So they are called the working poor. Um, we need to move the national minimum wage towards the real living wage, which last year, according to the living wage technical group of which we are part, was 13.85 an hour. So far higher than the 11.30 minimum wage. We need far greater resources for training, for upskilling, for higher education, particularly along the lines of, of lifelong learning and digital skills. And I know Michelle will talk more about that. Um, and I talked about increasing the two main tax credits by five euro a week, um, which would give an additional 10 euro to, to most um, employees. And that would cost 670.8 million next year. So I'll pass to Suzanne to go through the welfare proposals and then we might take some of Shabelle's questions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I suppose as, as Sean has already touched on it, you know, it, it, it's a society that's growing more equal by the year. And I suppose what's shameful is that it's a society that's growing more equal by the year due to policy decisions that are being made. So we can and really should do better. And I mean, social welfare is is one of the key ways of addressing poverty, because as we keep saying, Poverty is more than just income, but it's always about income. So an increase in core social welfare rates will be absolutely necessary if we're to make any kind of dent in any of the poverty figures that government has committed to. Sustainable development goals, where our aim is zero poverty by 2030. In the roadmap for social inclusion, we have a target of 2% of consistent poverty by 2025. And as Sean has already pointed out, the figures are actually going uh the opposite way you know what I mean but we're seeing we're seeing cohorts certain cohorts growing in terms of the amount of people who are who are living in poverty so the key you know social welfare that core rate has to increase by 25 euro in budget 2024 this will cost 1047 million um, but it will be vital if we are going to make inroads and again allow people the basics to be able to provide a life of dignity and again this is not about anything extraordinary it's just about the roof over the head food on the table heat bill light bill you know paying your bus fare paying your tv license all of those things paying your bin tags as john has already said again like it's the purchasing power um that's missing so core inflation again all the research has shown is that it's the lower income households it's rural households and older households that have been most hit by the right the, the the rising costs because the rising costs have primarily been about energy and food and these are the sort of things that are generally non-negotiable in our households it's very very hard to to cut back or or make massive changes when we're talking about just the basics when we look at core social welfare rate as well a key ask for us is that those who are aged between 18 and 24 who don't live independently currently get a reduced rate of job seekers. Now, at the moment, that's €129 Euro a week. That really has to be brought up to the full rate. Again, you know, we talked about two-tier. Um, you know, We're constantly talking about two-tier, but it just for those who are 18 to 24 to only receive €129, Euro, if these are adults. Uh, they're considered adults right the way across the spectrum. And then to treat this as as pin money almost, um, as pocket money, I just think is... is is wrong. Um, this is going to cost 63 million. And again, if we look at it making the economic argument, it's very, very difficult to be work ready, to be able to, to have an outfit, have a haircut, have access to the internet, um, bus fares, taxi fares, train fares, to even be able to access 
the labour market when you're getting by on 129 euro a week. Again, as Sean has already mentioned, the increase in older people living in poverty was quite, uh, I suppose, distressing to see that we had an extra 55,000 people from the silk figures last year. We are recommending as part of Budget 2024 that government really must increase the living alone allowance by a five or a week, and this will cost 62.5 million. As again, we've already touched on, the increases in our fuel costs have hit every household across the country. But research shows that it's those low-income households that are really struggling with this. So we would recommend that the fuel allowance would be extended out to those who are currently in receipt of working family payment. This also unlocks secondary benefits, so it would be of huge advantage. This is going to cost 44.5 million. And recent research then from the Irish Hospice Foundation shows that there's 30,000 households every year are impacted by a bereavement and at a time when you're least able to cope with it for many of these households it will bring a, a financial burden that it was either unforeseen or very very difficult to meet we are recommending that the bereavement grant should be reinstated at a cost of 850 euro per person deceased which will add up to 31 million in budget 2024 thank you am i going on do you want to go on or do you want me to do you want to answer some questions now, Suzanne? I'm easy enough. I'm not too sure which way Colette has it designed. We go for questions. Ah, I should throw out the questions there, Shabelle. Why not? Okay. Um I have one for you, Suzanne, at this point, um, which came in on Monday. So there's been a lot of talk recently of Middle Ireland. Um, so there's Sometimes there can be a sense that social justice Ireland are against Middle Ireland. So somebody's asking why that is and giving 25 euro per week to people who won't work could be seen as an incentive for the rest of us not to bother. So how would you respond to that? Vale's been very kind in how she framed that question. <laughs> Just framed quite differently. <laughs> not my views. Yeah, it, it's, this, it's this either or conversation again, which is, is not anybody's intention. Um, as as we can show, you know, there's 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 plenty of money out there, um, you know, but it's about it's about I suppose looking at where supports are needed, and as we said, it's it's the ideological choices who benefits from decisions that are made, and when we look at core social welfare, if the argument is to get out of poverty, get a job, but we can show that people who are living on core social welfare rates are living in poverty. So why, why aren't they getting a job? What's the barrier? The barriers are things like educational attainment level, they're things like access to transport, caring duties, they are um, the, the types of industry that are there versus the type of skills that you have. So it feeds into all the other conversations about housing and transport. But an overly generous social welfare system is not one of the reasons why somebody is surviving on two and not even surviving on 220 euro a week. So we do need to look beyond that. And if you have an argument at the moment that we are, if you're listening to this, I am making air quotes or bunny ears uh, to full employment. There's a disconnect then. So if we are a country which is at full employment and also have massive cohorts of people living in poverty, there's, there's a disconnect or something not matching up somewhere within that. So we're not anti-Middle Ireland. I think we probably are Middle Ireland. Um, but it's a case then of looking outside of your comfort zone and saying, OK, budget 2023, um, 
benefited those who were in employment and who are better off. It forgot about other cohorts in society. We're simply asking that they not be forgotten about in budget 2024. Shall we move Go on, Shabelle? Are there any more questions for us? I have questions for you, Colette, if you want to answer. Oh, fantastic. Go on. Just two on housing. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've seen the cost of construction rising uh, in line with inflation. And if we need to prioritise house building, then should we be looking at the rental sector and its unaffordable rents in terms of solutions instead of always looking at social housing? Um, yeah, and this is something that I suppose we get tasked with quite a bit is that we're only looking at social housing, we're only looking at welfare, we don't look at, you know, the the, the thing as a round. And actually, I think it's quite an unfair accusation because by looking at, at um, social housing, you're looking at it as part of the housing ecology, as par part of the housing system. There are, as of last year, almost 60,000 households living in private rented sector who are social housing tenants. And again, the Taoiseach himself said it earlier this year, they are social housing tenants. So if we built enough social housing where they had adequate, long-term, appropriate accommodation, that is freeing up 60,000 units in the private rented sector. It would take years to build 60,000 units um, in the private sector, the way we're going with construction as it is. But they are there. They already exist. They're just not being used appropriately. If you inject that, and yes, it will take some time, um, but if you inject that back into that sector, then that has a or should have a pressure effect on the price of rent across the board because you're now adding an additional 60,000 units to that sector, which should drive down um, the, the prices and therefore increase the affordability, which isn't a phrase I'm particularly in love with, but um, but it, it should make, it should kind of taper things off a little bit. Very good, thank you. And then last one with regard to housing supports and policy, uh, what are your views on tenures such as cost rental, and the recent changes to housing policy, such as the tenant in situ scheme. Yeah, so we would be very much in favour of cost rentals. So Sean is on the National Economic and Social Council, NESC, and they would have been working on, on cost rentals since at, you know, at least 2014, if not before, but they had a really good publication on it um, back in 2014. We've been looking at it since then. And um, back in 2018, we had a proposal to make it to kind of bring it off the balance sheet so it didn't add to the general government debt. Now, you know, in the time of bumper surpluses, maybe that's a you know an old conversation, but certainly it was something that was on our radar that we were promoting, that we were pushing for. We were following, I suppose, the template um, or almost a reverse of the template of the decision that had been made in relation to the tier three approved housing bodies when they were being deemed as being on balance sheet. And um, so we were trying to kind of make it affordable. Now, I, I say all of that, unfortunately, because of the scale with which we're building, we're, we're not building it at a sufficient scale to make it really affordable, but it is still a lot cheaper than new properties going on the market into the rental system at the moment. Um, so, you know, I, I know there was some talk last year that you, you were looking at maybe 1300 a month, which is still quite expensive. But when your average rent are, is 2000 a month, it's, it is that bit cheaper. We need to increase the scale of this. Um, so rather 
rather than looking at the bill to rent sector for the private rented sector, we need to be scaling up the social housing and the cost rental um, and concentrating the, the efforts there in relation to the, the fact that we know we have supply constraints, we know we have labour constraints, concentrating where it will do the most good, which is in that kind of area. Um, in terms of the tenant in situ, so that is where uh, a, a landlord can basically sell the property with the tenant in place. So if there is a market, and we are sure that there is, um, for rental properties in the state, then those rental properties presumably are going to be tenanted. So there should be a market for secondhand properties with tenants in situ. Again, it would be something that we would have called for ourselves and others. Um, this that this was a question actually that came up on Monday from Grania in Alone. They've done some excellent work with Threshold very recently on the impact, or sorry, I suppose the experience of older people in the private rented sector. And I know Threshold in particular have been very strong on this um, but it would be something that we have been supporting for quite some time in terms of bumping up tenants' rights and um, having that kind of long-term tenancy. It gives some security to tenants uh, who decide, even if we had all of the social housing and all of the affordable rentals that we need, um, that they want to stay in the, the private rented sector. It gives that security of tenure that you know there is a, a no-fault eviction, or sorry, an end to no-fault eviction, and that they can stay in their home into longer and older age. Uh, so hopefully that satisfies your question there. Um, and I'm going to move back to uh, Suzanne to talk to us a bit about the community and the community and voluntary sector um, before passing over to Michelle. Thanks, Suzanne. Thank you very much. As I think the community and voluntary sector really came into its own over the last couple of years, it proved to be such a vital part of the national response at local level to the pandemic. We, you know, supporting households, you know, really heavily impacted by the, the, the recent increases in the cost of basic goods and services. And very much again in assisting new arrivals into the country, those people fleeing war and persecution to help them become part of their new communities. We're very conscious all of this is despite costs to work, sorry, cuts to funding since 2008, which were never really fully restored. Government relies very heavily on the sector and therefore must ensure that it's resourced adequately. So we would recommend allocating an additional 50 million in budget 2024, which will also include pay, pay increases for the sector. I've got another vital link between um, national and local policy are the public participation networks that are active across every local authority in the country, engaged in policy making at local level. Again, we're really looking at, at the staff here are key. Long term investment is needed here in order to keep communities engaged with the process of participation. We are proposing an additional three million in budget 2024 to support capacity building and meaningful engagement within the policy structures at local level. Um, as was pointed out, actually, as a, as a reaction to Monday's launch was that the participation in sports is really, really key and looking at uh, the well-being of a nation. So in Ireland at the moment, it's 1.58 million people who engage regularly in sports. This, it sounds like a really high figure, but it actually shows a drop of 200,000 people since 2019. And based on current population projections, we actually need an additional 1 million people who need to participate in sport on a regular basis in order to achieve our 2027 targets. Research also shows that there's lower participation in sports in lower socioeconomic groups. 
Budget 2024, therefore, should allocate an extra two million to increase investment in sports and particularly sports and recreation facilities in disadvantaged areas. As I suppose we've already touched on as well, um, you know, our, our society is changing, it's becoming much more diverse. And, you know, there's discussion about the amount of money that we have to spend really just shows that Ireland is a safe, wealthy country. It's now able to offer refuge to people fleeing war and persecution across the world. And it also welcomes people who come here for work and educational opportunities. These are seen as positive things, that this is somewhere where people actually want to come and live and raise their children and build a life. But coming here, it will require assistance. It will require assistance in navigating various systems. I spoke to somebody this morning who's doing a piece of research on migration and migration support. And this is exactly what came up with, you know, how do you how do you register with a GP? How do you access, you know, uh, the types of amenities that are available through your, your, your local authority? So in order to be able to assist people in, you know, how to open a bank account, what, what you know, what kind of things you can get in a post office, we're looking at um, supporting the integration, the, the position of integration officer for each local authority. To the best of my knowledge, there's only one that's permanently funded through the local authority's own budget. There are other local authorities, not very many of them, who do have something on a, on a temporary basis. So we would see this again, Ireland is changing we do need to be in a position to support communities at a local level and we would see this as being vital. And lastly then, again, looking forward, we are recommending that Budget 2024 allocate half a million to the CSO to support forecasting for change. So it's a new method of population projection. And I think this will really be necessary if we're going to allocate our resources effectively. You know, what do we build? Where do we build it? Who do we build it for? today, tomorrow, and for generations to come. That's going to be really, really key. So thank you very much for that. Am I handing back to, for Q&A or to Michelle for to carry on? Thank you to Michelle to carry on at this point. Super, thank you, there you go. Thanks Suzanne. And uh, I'm just gonna briefly go through a number of areas. Um, starting off at rural uh, development, I suppose investments, in rural communities, particularly in this social and economic infrastructure to support them to prepare for, you know, a just transition and adaptation to climate change. So first of all, we're proposing a 100 million euro investment to regional development and transition, looking at things like smart villages and sustainable agricultural methods, looking at land management, land use, the development of local cooperatives with a view to, you know, embedding farm to fork strategies, expanding public services to promote and support rural living um, an allocation of this to support the delivery of the three rural proofing pilots, which were announced by the minister earlier this year and the development of living labs in every region. So looking at things like plastics, renewables, zero carbon buildings, bioeconomy, agroecology, and tying those in with the technological universities as well, I think would be great for the uh, economic diversity of the regions. Then in terms of, I suppose, regional industry, an additional 25 million for Enterprise Ireland with a focus on indigenous enterprise, an additional 25 million to fall to Ireland to promote island, local and regional tourism initiatives. So I suppose this would um, support some of the things in the, the, the new island strategy as well. The continued uh, rollout 
of the remote working hubs and I suppose the expansion of facilities within those hubs, you know, as they progress and expand the other supports they can provide to remote workers, but also to local businesses as well at a cost of 200 million euro and then 60 million euros for rural transport, 10 million for active transport and things like the walking, cycling infrastructure, not just for tourism initiatives, but to allow, you know, children to cycle to school, people to cycle or walk to work in the nearest town and 50 million euros to the rural transport program to increase public transport options and particularly looking at things like last mile transport, for example, and making sure the fleet's in line with climate commitments. So that's a whistle stop tour through rural Ireland. Now, moving on to health and those of you who've downloaded the document in Budget Choices, uh, we deal with health uh, on page 11. So uh, as part of the windfall uh, revenues, we're proposing that 600 million euros of this be um, allocated to the infrastructure allocation for staunch care, particularly looking at the regional health areas rollout and enhanced community care. In addition, so that's a windfall element, but looking at the current budget, we'd be looking for 100 million euros investment in enhanced community care to um, ensure treatment is provided at the appropriate level of need and to take the pressure off the acute health services and hospital system, which we, you know, we're hanging about the waiting lists on a monthly basis. We know the challenges they face. We had an announcement uh, just yesterday that uh, there's going to be an expansion of the free GP scheme uh, in August. So we're looking for a 100 million euro investment there to expand actually the number of GP practice teams in line with being able to provide this access to GPs uh, and in line with the shift towards primary care and community-based services envisaged in Slaunch Care. So, you know, there needs to be a real focus on if you're going to expand access, you do need to expand the service that you're providing as well. A 50 million investment in community nursing facilities and rehabilitation beds, that's obviously in line with the regional health area rollout and in Slaunch Care, the move away from the acute hospital system into community care, and then a 7 million allocation to implement the Connecting for Life suicide prevention strategy. Then and two other cohorts who interact directly with the health service are people with a disability and carers. So in terms of people with disability, I mean, they do have a higher poverty rate uh, than the general population. They have a much lower participation rate for those who are of employment age. Um, and they face additional daily costs as a result of their disability. So we're looking for a restoration of the cuts to disability services in full. So those cuts um, that were, uh, I suppose, introduced post-financial crash. We're also looking for a cost of disability payment. And we've been consistent on this for a number of years now, over 10 years, uh, at a 20 euros a week, cost of 227 million euros. Last year was the first time government acknowledged the additional cost of a disability, but it was just a one-off payment, but at least it was an acknowledgement. So we're looking for a full-time acknowledgement now and a weekly payment. Increased investment in services for people with disabilities, so respite, PA services. So that would be about a 40 million euro investment required there. Then moving to carers, and I suppose the latest results from the census show the, the increase of the number of carers in the population, also the huge amount of unpaid work they contribute to our society and our economy. So we're looking for an increase in the domiciliary care allowance to 355 euros a month at a cost of 14 million. So last year was the first increase in a number of years, and we'd like to see that extended again. The expansion of the free travel scheme to dis domiciliary care and allowance recipients at a cost of just over 6 million, an increase in the care support grant to 2,000 euros at a cost of 
just under 21 million. And then we fully support Family Carers Ireland call for an independent review of the carers allowance. And with this in mind, we're also looking for an investment of 10 million euros to pilot um, a universal basic services and universal basic income scheme for carers in line with the commitment in the programme for government to a carer's guarantee. So I think this would be a key element of a carer's guarantee. Now, uh, I suppose moving from there to an, a, another a large element of our, our public services education, which is on page 12 of, of budget choices. Um, so I'll split this into two. I'll look at higher and further education first and then move to primary and post-primary. So in terms of higher education, there was a gap identified in funding the future, which was uh, published last year. So the gap was uh, there was a funding gap of 307 million euro identified between the Department of Public Expenditure, Department of Further Higher Education, Innovation and Science and the Department of Finance. So 100 million is a first step, to, you know, closing that gap. A further investment in further education of 40 million euros to increase apprenticeships, to develop and expand traineeships to meet future skills needs in terms of digitalization, the circular economy, and I suppose particularly using the regional technological universities to look at rolling this out and promoting regional, regional economic diversification as well. And then 1 million euros to, um, I suppose, to uh, complement Suzanne's point earlier, to support a skills transfer program for migrants so that the skills and qualifications that they have can be recognized. Uh, an increase of the maintenance grant for full-time third level students of a thousand euro at a cost of 61 million, uh, an apprenticeship program focused on travelers at a cost of 2 million and an increase in the employer's contribution through the national training fund levy at 74 million, which would you know, go a considerable distance towards funding some of the issues I, I highlighted there. And then moving to primary and post-primary, um, looking at restoring the back-to-school clothing and footwear allowance to 2011 levels at a cost of 18 million euros. And we're also looking for an increased funding to the school meals program of six and a half million euros, an increase in capitation grants for primary and second level schools of 5% at a cost of 10 million euros, and uh, 15 million euros to support the continued expansion of the DESH program and a further 20.5 million euros to reduce the pupil teacher ratio by a further point in primary schools. So to keep class sizes below 20 in budget 2024, because this is the greatest impact at, you know, at that age cohort in terms of alleviating disadvantage. Then finally moving on to children. So um, children, they are one of the most vulnerable groups in society and the TSHIF did set up a child poverty and wellbeing unit in December. So we are proposing an increase of 15 euro, 50 euros per month in child benefit at a cost of 740 million as a first step towards investing more in children and addressing child poverty and meeting our own child poverty targets. Child benefit, it's a key element to tackling child poverty. Uh, uh, 1.1% of GNI star investment in early childhood care and education at a cost of 283 million euros per annum and this will build on investment in Leinster in the past number of years to support staff professionalization the expansion of the service expansion of provision to the Irish language and just expanding the service for all the children with a variety of needs who might want to engage with it 
uh, increased funding um, for non-contact time for those in the childcare sector at a cost of 30 million euros, increased funding for TUSLA and social provision for children at 46 million euros, uh, a further three and a half million to uh, continue the resourcing of the child guarantee strategy, and then 181 million euros to increase refuge spaces and supports for victims of domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. And I'm actually going to pass back over to Suzanne now uh, just to deal with ODA and some other issues. No, we're going to take some questions from Chevelle first. Uh, oh, you right, thought you got away with it there, Michelle, but you had so many questions on Monday that we felt it only fair that you get them all again. Um, so, Chevelle, if you want to shine a light in Suzanne's eye or in Michelle's eyes, there and you go with put, the questions. Put you under the spotlight, Michelle. Um, I'll start with a broad one. So, going back to healthcare. Uh, why is it that the health service still doesn't deliver the care that people require, even with the huge amounts of resources currently being invested? Yes, it's a considerable budget. It certainly doesn't deliver the outcomes for people. Um, I suppose it has to be borne in mind that the majority of that budget is going into the hospital sector. So that's acute care. So we're not actually progressing the community care piece, which would, you know, uh, people will be able to access care within their community without having to go immediately from their GP to the emergency room. So it would take pressure off the hospital services. You would see an expansion of care and I suppose a move towards more prevention and intervention rather than, you know, uh, dealing with the issue after it's arisen. So the second thing to make note of there is the additional cost annually of just uh, funding the existing level of service because we're aging and our population is growing. So um, the, that's a, between one and 1.4 billion annually. So that's obviously a huge amount of the money that goes in as well. But certainly it can be argued that, you know, the outcomes are not what they should be. And it can also be argued that despite the promise of Solange Care that hasn't yet been delivered because we haven't put in the necessary investment in the infrastructure for that and had the, the challenging discussion in the long term about how you reallocate existing resources from the acute system into the community care system. Amazing. I'm going to bunch the next two together. Um, so can you give more detail on the rationale for the an increase in child benefit benefit versus a targeted approach by increasing the weekly increase for a qualified child and then the second one is in relation to the Messel report highlighting how inadequate the one-off measures in budget 2023 were for one parent households in particular are there any targeted measures aimed at helping this group included in budget choices so in terms of the child benefit as opposed to the um, qualified child increase um like child benefit is one of the key routes to tackling child poverty. And when you've had increases, you've seen commensurate improvements in terms of a reduction in the number of children living in poverty. This was the other thing it acknowledges as well is that there, as Suzanne pointed out, the increased costs are having an impact on every household and every family some are obviously better able to cope than others, but there are there are a cohort of families and households out there who are above the thresholds for a lot of social welfare entitlements. But 
they are also finding it very difficult and challenging to make ends meet. So this is also a way of reaching those families as well, because unless government also expands, you know, eligibility for the fuel allowance, the back to school clothing and footwear allowance and some other um, expands eligibility for the working family payment, for example, then it doesn't really have a mechanism to meet that, to, you know, meet the needs of that group. So, so that's why we would have picked the child benefit piece. Then in terms of what the MESO showed, and I suppose we pointed out last September that, you know, uh, you can't address income adequacy without addressing the amount of income that goes into a household. And a one-off uh, increase in income is, you know, once that's spent, it's no longer there and that you do need to look at the core level of income. So that's either rates of pay or it's the rates of social welfare that the, the head of the household is on. I suppose in terms of uh, one parent families, we would see them benefiting from the 25 euro increase in core rates. We um, propose the increase in child benefit, the increased investment in childcare and early childhood care and education, the increased funding for the back to school clothing and footwear allowance and, and other areas. Obviously we're very conscious you know, despite being a small group, this group, a small group in terms of population number, you know, they are quite a vulnerable cohort when it comes to poverty risk. So we would see them as benefiting, you know, from all of really the welfare and education asks that we've proposed in budget choices. Brilliant. And then I'm going to do a last question that we got in on Monday. Um, why is the cost of disability payment set much lower than the actual cost of disability set out in a recent report? I suppose from our perspective, it's to actually get the fact that there is an additional cost to a disability acknowledged by government. And I mean, that's the first, that's the foundation. And once it is acknowledged um, and once it's legislated for, then you can look at the different rates because there are, as you said, it's it's very different from the cost and the, the most recent Indicon report found even within the disability sector, depending on the type of disability, the cost can vary so much. And it, you know, it also depends on the type of services that are available to that person as well. So for us, the first point is actually get, to get the principle established that there is an additional cost to disability and that the state should make a contribution to this additional cost because the person has to bear it through no fault of their own. And I think once that principle is established, then obviously, you know, what would be useful is something like the, the establishment of the Social Welfare Commission, like the low pay commission, to look at things like this, like what rates it should be set at and how, how you might do it and how, you, how the rates and the levels of services also interact. But the key point first is to get the principle established that there is additional cost to disability that's an ongoing cost, not one off, and that the state should make a contribution to it. Great stuff. Um, I suppose because Michelle ended on children, I'm going to go the other end of the age spectrum um, and talk about our our proposals in, re in relation to older people. Um, as Suzanne said, we are an aging population. It is a success story. Um, but unfortunately, government has just completely failed to properly plan for that shift. And that leaves many older people without the necessary secure accommodation, health care, social and income supports that they need. Um, older 
people, as we saw with the, with the publications by the CSO, they experience a higher rate of inflation than the general population. And in fact, in 2022, um, 143,600 older people were living in poverty. As Suzanne said, an increase of 55,000 people on the previous year. So we're calling on government to increase the state contributory and non-contributory pension by 25 euro a week, but also to universalize it um, as a step towards the introduction of a universal state social welfare pension. So there are still people who are of pensionable age, but who don't get the full or any pension payment. Um, so we would like to see that extended to all people who are of pensionable age. Um, to ensure that people can age well at home, which is, a, again, a, a key policy goal for government, um, we are proposing the reinstatement of the funding to housing adaptation grants. This was cut dramatically in 2010, um, and we would like to see that reinstatement taking place with an additional 85 million per annum starting in 2024. We'd like to see the introduction of the statutory right to home care, which was meant to be introduced in quarter one of 2021, um, but still hasn't been delivered. Um, and we'd like to see that increased as well. So again, that will be a provision of 96.4 million um, in budget 2024. In recognition of the work undertaken by the community and voluntary sector specifically in this area. So aside from the work that Suzanne talked about, but the, the kind of more general community and voluntary sector funding, um, specifically in relation to the organisations that deal with older people, we would like to see an increase in their funding, starting with 50 million in 2024 in recognition of the huge support that they provide. Um, and with just under 4% of the older population living in nursing home accommodation and the additional and, and often very complex uh, requirements that many of those people may have, we propose an additional 27.3 million for uh, an additional 500 nursing home beds. And then finally, to safeguarding, more than a third of all safeguarding reports made to the HSE safeguarding office um, last year were made by people aged 65 plus. We're calling on government to establish an independent national safeguarding authority at an initial cost of three million in budget 2024. Thank you. Um, you might just answer one question that came in on Monday to do with pensions. So is auto enrollment and the universal pension the same thing? And if not, can you explain the difference? Sure. Um, it isn't. Um, auto enrollment is something that has been introduced by government and it is for people who are of working age, who earn above a certain amount, it was 20,000 uh, per annum, um, and a proportion of their salary will be paid into a pension fund with some matching funding from the state. It is incredibly expensive um, and it's not it's not universal um, because there will be people who are, are left behind even within that system. What we're calling for, um, it also actually, just to kind of keep going with the auto-enrollment, it also what it does is it brings people below the poverty line. So, you know, you're already on quite a low income and then a proportion of that has to be taken from your, your salary. Now, there is a, an opt-out after six months, but it leaves you further behind and 
further unable to pay for your increasing heating bills, your increasing accommodation costs, your increasing grocery bills, because we have to remember within the context of what we're talking about, that while the rate of inflation is decreasing, there's no talk of deflation. You know, prices are still rising. They're just rising at a lower rate than they were last year. Um, But, you know, when we talk about, oh, you know, prices have decreased, they're not. When we see editorials uh, talking about, you know, being surprised by the fact that we haven't seen decreases on the shelves, we're not expecting to see decreases on the shelves because the rate of inflation is is going up. It's just slowed in pace. Um, So that is, you know, that's one of the fundamental flaws with, with auto enrollment. What we want to see, and we published a very extensive report on this back in 2018, and it's available on our website, um, is a proper universal state social welfare payment where everybody of universal age, or sorry, a pension age, um, receives a, a payment in their old age. And that would be based on a residency condition of 40 years. Um, so it's it's there to, to have a look at. They are quite different. Uh, we believe that ours provides a, a much fairer or um, solution to income inadequacy issues in older age. So thank you very much for that. Uh, we're going to go back to Michelle to talk about just transition uh, before going to Suzanne on international protection and, and then to me on, on ODA. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Colette. So um, I suppose just transition, one of the key elements of this is what you do and how you fund it. So um, we are proposing the implementation of an aviation tax on commercial air travel to yield 215 million euros in 2024. Air travel uh, and jet kerosene is actually exempt from excise and carbon taxes. So it's not at the moment, it's the one elephant in the room in terms of the transport sector and making a contribution to the carbon budgets and also with the, um, in line with the polluter pays principle. So until such time as government can proactively pursue the removal of this exemption at the EU level, we're proposing the implementation of this tax. So you're looking at all commercial flights paying a per passenger charge between five and 30 euros uh, departing Irish airports. Those flights obviously would have a seating capacity greater than 10. Um, then looking at just transition itself and the funding, and this is the funding that will come from the uh, the increase in the carbon tax that will be part of budget 2024, that'll come in at about 166 million euros. So, you know, this should support, obviously, the, the Just Transition Fund, which is there already, but also the establishment and the work programme of the Just Transition Commission, which is in the Climate Action Plan and the Programme for Government. Uh, we're of the opinion that this commission should be situated in the National Economic and Social Development Office. Um, funding obviously will be required for the Secretariat function of this commission. The delivery of the sectoral transition targets that I mentioned, so the carbon budget targets across industry, across energy, across uh, transport, across agriculture, and obviously any mitigation policies um, as those targets are met and the impact is it's felt. And then finally, then the funding should go to support um, uh, just transition dialogue framework. So this would be an ongoing dialogue at local, regional and national level to monitor the progress of meeting climate targets, the impact that these policies are having, 
the delivery of the social infrastructure required to support people, communities and sectors most impacted. And then looking, I suppose, at best practice, what works and what doesn't work. And it makes sure that people's voices are heard in the process, because I think one of the challenges that government is facing at the moment is people, particularly rural communities, feel that their voice is not being heard. We're proposing the introduction of a windfall tax on energy suppliers at shield 100 million euros, an aggregate levy of two euros 50 per tonne on um, rock, sand and gravel in the building industry that would yield about 75 million euros. 75 million euros in 2024. Um, then obviously oh, what we've raised there, you would be investing things like in things such as adequate funding for renewable energy programs, community energy advisors. Um, we'd be looking at 100 million euros there, a 10 million euro investment in the National Biodiversity Centre to scale up policies to support biodiversity, to scale up policies, to embed natural capital accounting into economic decision-making, for example. Then an additional 10 euro investment to support the circular economy, to implement our own circular economy strategy. Um, so looking at sustainable agriculture, farms, sustainability passports, um, living labs, and then the piloting of the circular economy town. And then finally, um, uh, an investment of 0.1% of GNI star uh, annually in climate research at a cost of 283.6 million euros. And now I'm going to pass over to Suzanne to look at international protection. Oh, wait, Shabelle, did you want to ask me some questions? Sorry, I should have checked. No, I'll let you off. Like this time, Michelle, you're okay. Great. Well, then I will pass over to Suzanne this time to look at international protection. Thank you very much. Um, the figures as of early June 2023 showed 21,270 people living in direct provision and emergency accommodation, protection accommodation. That's spread across 205 separate locations across the country. And I think what's quite remarkable is that two of those are listed as being temporary tented sites. So that's on our official statistics. In addition to, and in contrast to um, those seeking international protection, by February of this year, we had 74,458 Ukrainian refugees arrived in the country. And this, according to our roundtable on migration to the common home, migration, this pattern will continue and it will increase into the future and it must be planned for accordingly. We saw it was yesterday the hottest day on record, I believe, I think broken, which broke the previous record, I think from the day beforehand. The world is changing. Where we can live is changing. Um, migration patterns will change we need to be able to to deal with this and plan for it so we were able to see we had the day report from 2020 and then we had a subsequent white paper on ending direct provision in 2021 there were challenges there when these documents were written they are you know they exist prior to the russian invasion of ukraine they exist prior to the pandemic they exist prior to um to the you know the, the cost of living increases that we've seen but they recommended a new model of delivery, which, again, I suppose when we look at where money is flowing, like HAP, money is flowing from the public sector into the private sector. So, what, you know, if if when you look at kind of the rhetoric around um, migration and people seeking refuge, a lot of money is being spent, but you need to question where it's going. So this new system that was was due to, I mean, 
February 2021, I think, was you know when this new model of delivery was due to begin. We haven't seen it. I appreciate that there's been bumps and roadblocks in the way, but that is going to cost a considerable amount of money. And we're recommending that um, an extra 500 million be allocated in budget 2024 to begin this process. Uh, and again, now more than ever, people are arriving into this country traumatized. I, you know, imagine what, just think about what people are fleeing. And I'm conscious, even the fact that the five of us are sitting on in, in a public arena critiquing government policy is not something that can be done in every country across the world. And it is something that we should acknowledge and celebrate. Like this is a luxury for us to be able to do that. And I don't think we understand where people are coming from, the types of regimes that they are fleeing. Uh, vulnerability assessments will be very necessary to be able to figure out the types of trauma that people are fleeing when they arrive here. That will cost a 200, so 2 million. And we would recommend another 51 million is needed to increase the weekly adult allowance for those living in direct provision. And again, I cannot stress it enough, 38.80 a week is what people are getting. That needs to be increased by 50 a week for adults. For those under 12, we would recommend an increase of 20 a week. And for those between 12 and 18, an extra 50 a week. This will cost, as I said, 51 million. And that's just to provide the basics. Again, this is nothing, um, you know, there's, there's no there's no luxuries here. This is really just to be able to put the, the basics uh, at, at people's disposal. So um, I think that's me for direct provision. I could talk for hours, but I won't. So I'm going to pass <laughs> on to... She certainly could. Um, and I am going to, I suppose, round off that piece with, with our international obligations uh, as well. And then we'll go back to Shabail for questions. Um, just in relation to overseas development aid and climate finance and loss and damage. And again, if if for those of you who are listening to this, um, if you want to have a look at our proposals in more detail, these are on page 16. Um, it's imperative that overseas development aid or ODA as it's known, is separated from commitments to climate finance, which were made under a separate agreement and a separate meeting, unfortunately in the same year in 2015, which is probably why they're being conflated constantly, um, and loss and damage, which is agreed at COP27 last year, but which costs haven't been determined for. We actually don't know what our obligations are going to be. Up to now, approximately 10% of our ODA has really been climate finance. And we only see that when we see the Irish aid um, annual reports that's not disaggregated in the budget documentation, which it should be. Um, we're therefore further behind the UN target of 0.7% of national income than we thought we were. And that must be properly accounted for. And in budget 24, we're calling on government to allocate a 1 billion fund from the windfall to properly fund each of those separate commitments, including, as I said, loss and damage, which hasn't actually being accounted yet we don't know what the obligation is going to be but we know that if as someone explained it to me um oda is buying someone a tent and kind of tidying them over loss and damage is rebuilding their house we know the commitment is going to be large this is reparations we're talking about um so we need to start preparing for that we need to ring fence the costs associated with the temporary protection directive supports for migrants who are fleeing the war in Ukraine as separate again from ODA. ODA is overseas development assistance. These are in in country supports. They need to be separate from that. 
And then finally, the World Food Programme estimates some 345 million people are facing high levels of food insecurity this year in 2023. So we're calling on government to allocate 1 billion to world hunger programmes in budget 2024. So I'm going to pass back to Shabelle for the final time to ask her final questions before moving on to Sean to wrap us up. Thank you. You're on mute, Shabelle. Sorry, Susanna, I come to you first. We got two questions in relation to direct provision. You actually largely answered one of them. So that's easy in terms of uh, the welcome call for an increase of 51 million for payments to people living in direct provision. So in terms of an increase to the child part of these payments um, or the introduction of the International Protection Child Payment as committed in the white paper, are those two the same as in the 51 million? They're not, and um, as we kind of discussed on Monday, this was a this was a conversation we had with which which trouser leg did we go down? Um, so this is based on the research that was done for the minimum essential standard of living work for direct provision. Now that work did concentrate on families, but that found that the adults in the family needed an extra 50 a week, the children needed under 12 needed 17 euro 92 cent and those between 12 and 18 needed. And again, just looking at the basics, we've expanded that out really to include every adult living in direct provision. Um, and again, just you know, rounded up then the, the, the child payments. So this is more linked with that, but it, it isn't, um, it, it may, it, I think it, it meets the needs, well, Sorry, it doesn't meet the needs of anybody living in direct provision, but it would make some inroads towards it. But that was the conversation that we had, which which one do we look at? And I think because the MESL is so new compared to the, um, the, the you know the white paper and the day report, go do go back a year. The MESL, I think, is from, from a month or two ago. So it was just felt that that was much more, um, I suppose, much, much more sort of up to date. So that was the decision we made there. But again, ideally, people wouldn't be living in these accommodation centres for, I mean, the recommendation, I think, is that you're within four months, if your claim is still in progress, that you're moving to accommodation within the community. So this should really be a payment that's paid for such a short period of time in an ideal world. Um, and then the second question that came in, uh, which we hear a lot, I think, sometimes is, if increasing payments to people in direct provision will increase the number of migrants coming here or people seeking asylum. Yeah, I, I had kept a newspaper report over the weekend for Monday special and then I had to go and fish it out of the bin again for today. But that's, you know, it, it's a UK paper. It's Camilla Cavendish writes about it. And I think this really just sums it up. The debate about immigration often focuses on welfare benefits, but a much bigger factor is the desire to come to a vibrant, tolerant country. And I think that is the key. We take for granted our freedoms. We take for granted that women have access to education. We take for granted that women have access to the workplace. Um, all of those things, you know, the, the stability, the security, the safety that we provide that to, to be to be yourself, to, to lead the type of life that you, you want to. For a lot of people across the world, this isn't an option. Um, they're fleeing war, they're fleeing persecution. And I think anybody who would bundle their kids into the back of a van or walk halfway across Europe in order to receive 38.80 a week, I people aren't that different. You know, I don't think it's something that 
I would be prepared to do with my children unless I really had no choice. It's about upending everything you know, going somewhere you don't know anything, you don't speak the language. Um, we have no idea what traumas people have. Just even that journey alone is traumatic. Um, never mind the impetus behind you to actually to, to engage in that journey. Um, I don't think anybody is traveling halfway across the world leaving everything behind uh, because they've got a spreadsheet out of which countries were providing the the, the biggest rates of, of social welfare supports when they got there. I just can't buy into that and I won't buy into it. Thank Brilliant. Uh, Colette, I'm going to ask you one final question that wasn't asked on Monday, but I have a feeling people have views on it. So I'm just going to throw a spanner in the works at the very Ooh, last minute. Secret questions, go on. Uh, what would you say to people who advocate for getting our own house in order first in terms of budget allocations to international protection and ODA? <sighs> yes, uh, this is a question that comes up. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say there is enough money to go around. Like we are going to find it difficult to spend the surplus. There's 10 billion this year, 16 billion next year, a wraparound of at least 65 billion up to 2025. Um, it is a matter of political will. We could have done this before now. We could have been in much better shape um, way before the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, so that it wasn't such a, a monumental crisis when we undertook what we were told to do um, under the temporary protection directive. So the fact that there was such a vast chasm of a difference between um, international protection applicants who are warehoused in direct provision centres and those who, for whom we are seeing adverts across social media, across you know mass media, uh, looking for accommodation pledges, ministers at one point going out to airports, um, PPS numbers in hand. Um, you know, we need to have a, a much broader basic conversation around, as Suzanne said earlier on, forecasting, around population forecasting. If we know and we include migration, because migration is going to be a fact of life, climate change isn't going anywhere. And um, even if all of the great proposals that Michelle outlined, even if they were all to come in now, we are still going to have adverse, Im adverse impacts of climate change. We are still going to see mass migration. We are still going to see the teeny tiny proportion of that come here that we're seeing at the moment um, and we just need to be better prepared for it um, it certainly isn't the the fault of any migrant who's come here as Suzanne said bundling their children up and, and walking half of Europe to get here and um, it isn't their fault that we are so grossly inadequately prepared um, there is enough mon money there is enough funding to do everything that needs to be done including supporting um, the 12,000 odd homeless people who accessed emergency accommodation in two weeks in, in May, um, including the increase in social housing provision. Government have chosen to focus on the wrong things. We call our pre-budget submission budget choices for a reason, because it is about choices. Up until now, those choices have been skewed to the better off. They've been skewed in terms of tax cuts. We're still seeing that conversation being had around, will it be a 30% tax cut or, you know, sorry, 30% um, tax ban or will there be a thousand euro in tax cuts that will accumulate for a billion euro? Uh, or will we actually do the right thing and build social infrastructure and comply with our human rights obligations? We can do all of that. 
down off my soapbox. Thank you very much. Uh, so I'm going to hand back to Sean now um, to wrap it all up in terms of our our goal, our vision, our framework for a social contract. Thanks, Sean. Well, you've done very well there, uh, Michelle, in the sense of summarising some of the key issues in terms of the social contract issue. Because at the heart of what's going on in Ireland today is a kind of a broken core. Uh, there's a, uh, there's this social contract idea um, that countries have. And basically, it's the kind of agreement, usually unwritten, uh, between a, a government and its people, basically. And what we have in Ireland is a situation in which that agreement and the various things that we do, we do certain things and pay certain taxes and they're supposed to sort of deliver various other goods uh, in it for for the for the people of the country. But when you look at Ireland, you get this kind of two part Ireland, some doing extremely well and some do, uh, still living in serious poverty and uh, not alone that, but the numbers on the poverty side going in the wrong direction. The bottom line then is, is that Ireland's social contract is broken. We need a new social contract and what we in Social Justice Ireland have been arguing for a while, several years now, is that Ireland's new social contract should have five goals um, um, to build a vibrant economy, decent services and infrastructure, just taxation, good governance and sustainability. And each of those five areas requires quite a lot of work to be delivered. Um, now, there's a difference between, some people would say, but sure, everybody wants that. Yes, at one level, but just hang on a sec. Um, what we have done in Ireland over and over and over again is we have taken an approach that prioritizes the economy. We've basically said, get the economy right, everything else will follow. That is simply not true. That doesn't happen. And what we've got to recognize that there's a reason why it doesn't happen. Why? Because if you want a vibrant economy, you must have decent services and infrastructure. Because if you don't have the services to back up the economy, the two, like you won't have the vibrant economy you're looking for. They need each other. They're interdependent. But that's not all. Because if you have decent services and infrastructure, you've got to get the just taxation in place. You've got to get taxation. You have to pay for whatever it is you're doing or decide how it's to be paid for. And uh, that involves just taxation, among other things. So... Uh, a thing that government uh, that people generally a fourth item that people generally are looking for and demanding nowadays is good governance and they need they're looking for good governance locally and nationally and internationally too uh, and finally uh, there's an issue now that is no longer an argument uh, for well for the most part and that is the need for sustainability economic sustainability social sustainability environmental sustainability the build you know the balanced regional development and environmental protection, the kinds of things that um, people um, kind of, a lot of people take for granted that that there should be goals. And most other people, I think, once they think about it, would acknowledge that they should be as well. So we need a new social contract that's got a vibrant economy, decent services and infrastructure, just taxation, good governance and sustainability. These five items together. And um, the, it, the, the what we would say is the key to whether this will succeed or not is that they must be done simultaneously. If you do them simultaneously, if you build your infrastructure and services at the same time as the economy, 
And if you ensure your good governance is in place and you do everything sustainably, you have a different approach to what we have been using before. And we would argue that this is the way the social contract should go. Um, and just to give you an uh, like if you look through page uh, 18, I think, yes, 18, um, where we actually set out all the investment packages. If you go down through that, you'll see that we have packages in each of these areas. Like we have on the vibrant economy, we have the 5 billion win windfall. We have um, an additional, uh, we have 1.4 billion in the windfall and housing, but um, but that's on top of 170 million, which is the, the, the amount that's, that's budgeted for for the, this coming year with before the additional, uh, it's additional to what's there already, but it doesn't take the uh, windfall into account. And then we have a package for, of pension for pensions and older people, 1.143 uh, billion. We have rural and regional development, 667 billion. These are very substantial programs and contributing to a vibrant economy. Decent services, we have uh, 940 million on health, 400 plus million on education, children and families are over 620. Just taxation, we have just, uh, taxation measures amounting to 2.191 billion. So we've substantial just taxation measures in there. We had a whole section um, that, that um, collected and went through about reform of the tax system. Good governance is critically important. We have money in here for community that we talked about and uh, things like the um, um, the PPNs, public participation networks at local level, and the the need for support at a national level for the development of the various uh, community issues and the money for uh, refunding to the community and voluntary sector money that it lost back in the crash of two thousand eight and hasn't still been repaid. And on sustainability, we have a just transition budget uh, in the list there on page eighteen that we. Uh, Michelle talked about earlier in this that 300 is 339 plus million. Now, uh, I think they are the kinds of things that we're talking about. We need a just, uh, we need a, so, a new social contract. We need these kind of packages into place. And we need then a budget that serves both of those. And the budget has to be nuanced and it has to be aware and it has to be sympathetic to this kind of approach, if you like, so that we get. So, for example, one of the things that we and this came up in the question, I think um, the one of the things that we have been pointing out for several years in our budget analysis, the morning after budget, is that the amount of money allocated for the Department of Health is not sufficient to meet the existing level of service in the in the Department of Health's budget, uh, uh, work that they're doing. So just to maintain what they're doing, plus the government's new announced initiatives, that the money is not sufficient to meet both. And we would be strongly urging that that be rectified and stop the nonsense of year in, year out, running into huge deficits in the Department of Health. Another thing about nuance and being able to be careful to devote to um, make decisions in the budget that take you in a viable, sustainable way in the future. An example, take child, why did we choose child benefit over those child addition payments for people who are unemployed? And, uh, Michelle laid out the, the reasons there. Um, and I think they're, they're, the reasons are very substantial. But I'd add another one. 
um, that if you go with the idea of putting the money into child additional payments, you're actually creating an unemployment trap because these payments are going to be lost by an unemployed person when they actually take up a job. And that, like Ireland, this is a little bit of like, we need to be aware of our history in this context as well. We spent an awful long, long time, like up to a decade, a couple of decades ago, moving away from lar large child additional payments for people in families who are unemployed and moving it and basically arguing that it should be moved to child benefit. And the reason being, child benefit is maintained. So when people pass from unemployment to unemployment, there's no barrier whatsoever. The problem, the other one is we need to be careful. Don't create uh, the barriers, if you like. So uh, in that context, uh, I'm, I'm simply making a point that um, budgets need nuance and they need to be built with this kind of social contract in view. And they need to be done um, effectively, if you like. Um, now, overall, I would be saying I think that social justice in Ireland's view is that government put a new social contract and a focus on the well-being of Irish people at the heart of its programme for government. And if it is to deliver on this, then a new social dialogue is required to come to a consensus on the standard of living that people want and agree on and how this is to be delivered and financed. Budget 2424 can begin this process by investing excess windfall profits, as we have suggested, in areas where we have infrastructure deficits and by ensuring everyone in society has a minimum social floor below which they do not fall and by putting key community values before unbridled profit. At its core should be a single commitment, a core commitment vulnerable in Irish society will be protected in budget 2024. A repetition of budget 2023 or a movement in that direction as government has been indicating in the publication of its summer economic statement is not going to rectify this. It'll take us further in the wrong direction. So we have a choice. As, the, as Colette said, the heading the headline or the title of our publication is Budget Choices. Thank you. Back to you, Colette. Great stuff. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for those who are watching this. Thank you to those who are listening to this. Um, all of our proposals are available on our website, socialjustice.ie. If you would like any further information, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us through secretary at socialjustice.ie and we will do our level best to get back to you. Uh, we will, of course, be responding to Budget 2024 the day after it is published. Um, so do save the date for Wednesday, the 11th of October, which is the the second Wednesday, because the, the budget is generally the second Tuesday of October. Um, so unless they change things again like they did last year, we will be there uh, announcing our analysis of budget 2024. Once again, thank you so much to my colleagues, Dr. Sean Healy, Michelle Murphy and Suzanne Rogers, to the very lovely Shabelle Devely for her questions, for holding our feet to the fire um, and to everybody who listened. Thank you so much. Take care. <laughs>